The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. In virtual worship, our sanctuary empty, we gather this autumn Sunday. Let us worship God in spirit and in truth. The liturgy, music, and sermon are offered in the praise of God for our virtual congregation through WBUR 90.9 FM and our listenership now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership, ministry, and service in our midst. And as the Spirit moves, and when and as it is again permitted and safe to do so, your presence with us here in worship. Today's service of worship includes the greeting and sermon new this week, along with music and liturgy rebroadcast from earlier services. Although our nave is empty, the music is full. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy for giving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love towards us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you always and also with you. May we exchange with one another signs of his peace. lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Honor your father and your mother, 
so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slaves or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 19 with the antiphon. Heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. 
Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Glory to you, O Lord. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But, ten but the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated, him in, treated them in the same way. Finally he sent his son, 
to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. There is a liberal art in generosity. Jesus meets us today to challenge us, to confront us, and to inspire us with the hope of something new. Faith in him and love for his fruitful community and a life directed toward a final hope. All these lie before us in this holy hour. Some years ago, in our first year after seminary, a very small act of mercy, of generosity, on the part of a colleague began to show me the power of the new life found in the doing of the faith. As the psychologists say, the heart follows the hand. We had only been married a couple of years and had more recently entered the working world. Some of you are there today. Others remember those days. Others expect them one day. Our little house was gradually filling up or being filled up with the materials of early married life, a car in the driveway, clothing on the line out back, a crib, dog food bowl in the kitchen corner, wedding and family photographs and new albums, It all happens so quickly. Marriage degree, job, house, child, car, dog, clothes, all of a sudden, it hardly seems real or possible. One day during this period in our early life together, there came a most surprising bit of information. This news was delivered in the course of a simple supper as the dog barked and the drying clothes flapped in the breeze and the baby upstairs cried on to sleep. The information was in some a medical bulletin, one of those little messages from doctor to patient to patient's family, an insignificant bit of news as far as the televised world news was concerned, just another report and a report on a lab report. Soon there would be another mouth to feed. What excitement. It hardly seemed possible or real, but reality did set in. And reality did set in, was ushered in, not surprisingly, by means of the checkbook. Ah, the checkbook. Stern reminder of the limits of life. Unerring measure of the various pursuits of happiness. Implacable judge of the ways of humans. The checkbook. Clothes, dog, child, car, and all finally had to be paid for from one source. Reality did finally set in. Both Paul and Matthew, by the way, today in our lessons in their own way are trying to convey a sense of reality. 
So it was in this period of early marriage, the period of judgment by way of the checkbook, when, I recall, a real kindness was done. Among many other unmanageable expenses, our car needed new brake pads. I did check to see the price that would be charged to have them installed. I wondered how we could afford it, which is where things sat on a late summer evening in a small cottage-like parsonage nearby one of the great Finger Lakes, with the clothes flapping on the line, the dog well-fed and ill-behaved, and the baby crying to the moon above. The next evening, I met with a neighboring minister, a man about 15 years older than I. We did our work and then set to talking about life in general. The topic of cars and brakes and brake pads somehow wiggled to the surface, and with it, all the manifold cares and worries of this life about which the scripture says, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. This fellow minister then suggested that the next day, early in the morning, I bring the car to his house, wherein went he would teach me how to change the brake pads on the car myself. This we did together. In the course of the morning, we also talked through various strategies open to young married couples to avoid the stern, grim judgment of the checkbook. There are ways, it turned out, and he had been there. I know this backwater tale of an unheralded act of generosity done in 1980 hardly constitutes earth-shaking news. I guess it is just a matter of vineyards and harvest, of the prize of the upward call, of the way we ought to be as people of faith. Such a recollection of such a simple generosity, a liberal art, one of the great liberal arts, hardly seems worth mention. And yet, it meant a great deal and hovers in memory years later four decades later, as the very grace of God. Here is one doing what he and we ought to have done. Here is an act of compassion. Here is an act of mercy. Here is something new. Here is what Emerson, Emerson meant, saying, virtue alone creates something new. Today you may sense a hunger, a sharp hunger in the souls of women and men from all different walks of life, it is a hunger that does not abate with the ministrations of all that position and fortune and plenty can provide. It does not wilt in the face of pandemic, of climate, of presidential contest and calumny, of abusive law in the name of order, of personal betrayals near and far. It is a hunger that reaches for God. It is a hunger for God. There is a hunger for God today in the souls of men and women that will not be filled by anything else. It will not be filled by anything other than God. Finally, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, and there is such a fine, fine hunger in your own heart, can only be filled by God, by love, by freedom, by grace. By the faith of Jesus Christ and by love for his community, and by a life directed toward a final hope of glory. We can and will proclaim this hunger from this pulpit. We can and will announce God's gracious love from this pulpit. But in the end, you will find it, or it will find you, in your own experience, one by one, two by two. You are likely to be shocked to faith by no more than one real encounter with one real act of generosity at the hand of one real person. 
or said negatively, as doer Matthew might, if one real generosity does not point you to new life, will a hundred or will a thousand? One grace note, wrong and heard, is all it takes. Here is the vineyard still. Here is the winepress still. Here is the harvest coming still. There comes a time when our time is no longer our own. So today, let your own hand guide your own heart. Act in kindness and you will find that you are kinder too. Act in generosity and you will discover a generous spirit within. Act with faith and faith will find you. Your heart will follow your hand. We come to meet Jesus who meets us in deed now, not only in word. He meets us in the central moment of life, the full giving that is real loving, the real loving that is full giving, the offering of life for life. The question is, are we ready to receive him today? There is a liberal, there is a liberal art in generosity. There is a liberal art in humility, especially the humility of labored self-criticism, the humility of communal and rigorous self-assessment. We shall try to muster some such this morning to try to interpret the parable from St. Matthew, his own interpretation of what St. Mark left him. The last 250 years of rigorous labored biblical self-criticism gives us the motive and the power to do so. Our predecessors in this work gave us a lasting and graceful example of humility. Here the humility to put every passage of Holy Scripture to the test, the test of historical critical study as a basis for theological homiletical reflection. And this is an awesome gift, hard won, won with cost. But the fruit of it is grace and truth and also a way in which to make some sense of parables like this one, which, served raw, without historical critical cooking, will produce dyspepsia and disease. The humility to do so since the 18th century is a liberal art. Call it the art of humility. So we learn that Matthew writes in 85 AD, rewriting Mark from 70 AD, who wrote about Jesus in 30 AD, so we learn that the stone the builders rejected, verse 42, is from Psalm 118 and is taken over from Mark. So we learn that in Mark the rejected stone must be Jesus, but Matthew, adding verses 41b and 43, makes it refer to Christians. The nation is the Christian church here, composed of both Gentiles and Jews. So we learn that the passage seems to have been a commonplace of early Christian preaching, since it is also found in Peter's speech in Acts 4.11 and 1 Peter 2.7. So we learn that in 22.7, Matthew may also have had the Jewish war in mind, years 66 to 70 AD, and that verse 44 is not original. Let Peter Berger of blessed memory remind us of this humility. He wrote, there is a huge literature about the problems raised by biblical scholarship for faith and theology. The problems exploded with the rise of modern historical scholarship being applied to the Bible, beginning earlier but then progressing impressively in the 19th century. 
Much of this new scholarship took place in Protestant theological faculties, especially in Germany. A historically unique event of religious scholars applying the scalpel of critical analysis to the sacred scriptures of their own tradition. A historically unique event of religious scholars applying the scalpel of critical analysis to the sacred scriptures of their own tradition. The meaning of critical here is clear. Biblical texts are analyzed in the same way as any other historical text with the question of their revelatory status rigorously excluded from this exercise. Many biblical scholars succeeded and still succeed in understanding the revelation being somehow preserved within the all too human processes that produced the text he wrote. I am one. A good friend asked, why does Matthew say God tortures? Referring to a gospel lesson from two weeks ago. And I wrote back to say I really couldn't fully answer except to note that Matthew's dark side waxes as his gospel wanes. And much of that, in grief to humbly state it, is laced with ancient anti-Semitism. That is, in the latter chapters, Matthew's language turns decidedly grim. We hear that again today. Yes, we keep the rhetorical mode of hyperbole in mind. Yes, we recognize the religious penchant for odium theologicum, theological hatred. Yes, we can see the dark clouds of the terror of Emperor Domitian on the late first century horizon. But none of that alone will allow us to make sense of Matthew's harshness here. For that, we will have to render and conjure what lies just underneath most of these later chapters. And that is a fierce Mathean love for the church, protection for the church. That is a fierce Mathean love for the church and viral commitment to fruit. The fruits, unexplained in the text, are doubtless good works. And the broad expression used shows that Matthew intends a general principle. In all ages, the kingdom of God is for fruit bearers. The Christian church insofar as it bears fruit. It is noteworthy that the emphasis Matthew feels he must add for the proper understanding of the parable is the very one commonly neglected or reinterpreted today. So Professor Carlston parables of the triple tradition. St. Matthew's fiercest passion wells up out of the scripture for these weeks in September and October. Matthew holds a very high view of the church, far higher than we expect, far higher than yours and mine, we could add. In waxing religion today, the church is largely an expedient to be used often for good causes, but to be used to be sure, and then if there is time, to be loved. In waning religion, the church is often also an expedient, though here for causes more progressive than traditional, interests more mental than physical, to be used often for good causes, but to be used to be sure, and then perhaps loved. This the fundamentalists and radicals have in common. What did Augustine say? We use what we should love and we love what we should use. Yet for Matthew, the church is empowered with the means of lasting forgiveness, with a mind for sound ethics, and especially 
with the real presence of Christ, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Matthew trusts this risen Christ and this voice of the risen Christ to free him to follow his bliss, to succumb to his passion. It is the passion of an evangelist who finds every blessed possible way to connect a Jewish Jesus with the Greek world. It is the passion of an evangelist who enlists an old missionary teaching track, Q, to spread inspiration, truth, and joy. It is the passion of an evangelist who portrays your savior among pagans, amid harlots, appended to the cross, about the resurrection work of compassion. It is the passion of an evangelist who sums up his gospel this way, go, make of all disciples. The whole point of the gospel of St. Matthew the evangelist is that he is an evangelist. He it is, not me. He it is, not we, who points you to a new passion, one you, you plural, have not fully intimately known. Matthew's passion, a people, a people, producing the fruit of the reign of God. Don't just talk, do. Do you notice and squirm? Matthew is moving the parable away from judgment on Israel toward judgment on the church. On the church, if and as the church does bear fruit worthy of repentance. On us, if and as we do not bear fruit. Generosity, humility, two liberal arts, generosity, humility. Generosity, what two things shall you offer gratis this week to God and neighbor? Humility, what are the two truest lasting criticisms of you that others see but perhaps do not mention? The two areas of most needed personal continuous growth. In a moment we will hear again the ancient liturgy for Eucharist. We are not together to receive together the bread and cup, but we are together in relationship, by memory, in hope, through prayer. And with a little imagination, with eyes closed and hearts open, we might follow and allow the familiar ancient prayers of communion to bring us into spiritual communion. So travel with a little imagination. Imagine Eucharist at Marsh Chapel. Stand to sing, pause to reflect, step out into the aisle, look at and look past Abraham Lincoln and Francis Willard, Receive cup and bread, bread and cup in the mind's eye. Kneel at the altar to pray. Stand in communion with the communion of saints. Here is the bread and cup of friendship. Imagine if you are willing your own funeral, say, right here, say, in a congregation reciting together, say, a creed, a psalm, a hymn, a poem. Imagine if you are willing a congregation currently in diaspora, but just now, by the word spoken, a gathered and thus addressable community, you and I, and all together, sursum corda, lift up your hearts. Amen. Mm -hmm.
for the work before us, for the spirit around us, for the life within us, we offer our thanks. Bless these gifts and the givers, we pray in Christ. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. You have made from one every nation and people to live on all the face of the earth. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Blessed is your Son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. He commissioned us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth and to make disciples of all nations, and today his family and all the world is joining at his holy table. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Renew our communion with your church throughout the world and strengthen it in every nation and among every people to witness faithfully in your name. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, let us pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine upon you with grace and mercy. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.